Well, it is good to see you this morning and to see y'all so cool, especially after a week like this. I'm a little OCD, just a little, and I like it when my thermostat and my temperature setting match, and that hadn't happened at all this week. My poor air conditioner has worked really hard, and I'm sure that yours has as well. Well, hasn't it been great to just worship God through music here this morning and to uh, sing about the glories of of, of Christ, to sing about our sin and the free pardon that we receive as Christians? It is a little hard for us to believe that there are people in our culture, politicians in our government, um, other religions, that when the name of Jesus is mentioned, that's not an issue of worship, that's an issue of animosity and of hatred, and we can't fathom that someone doesn't love what we love, especially when we talk about the God who not only created all of us, but loves us enough to have sent His Son to die for us. And yet, one of the things that we notice as we continue in the passage of Scripture where we find ourselves is that Jesus was not universally loved and affirmed and uh, adored. He was hated And so last week, as we get into the very last week of Jesus' life, Jesus has really kind of uh, taken it to the religious leaders and called them unqualified and called them deceivers. And last week, we began to look at the revenge of the Pharisees. And so far in the baseball game, Jesus versus the Pharisees, after the first outing, the Pharisees have a big goose egg, and Jesus has scored a run. They thought they had trapped him by asking him, a thorny political question about the nature of the relationship between our faithfulness to God and loyalty to the state. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes or not? And Jesus offers a brilliant answer. Render to Caesar, this is my paraphrase, the little bitty bit that belongs to Caesar, render to God everything that belongs to God. Well, once the Pharisees didn't do so well, it's now time for this week the big boys, the varsity team, to give it a shot. And so we'll continue our journey through the scriptures in Matthew chapter 22, looking specifically at verses 23 through 33. And just as it was timely for us to look at our faithfulness to the state in the midst of a political season, I think that this morning we'll deal with a big question that all of us really need to wrestle with. The scriptures will be on, your, uh, on the screen, um, but it'll also, if you have, uh, don't have your own copy of the scriptures, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. You can turn to page 699 and find it there. <clears throat> we'll begin in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 22. God's word says, The same day some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up to Jesus and questioned him. Well, with verse 23, we are introduced to a new religious group, the Sadducees. Strangely, we have not heard much about them in Matthew's gospel because the Sadducees really didn't care about Jesus one way or the other. They weren't opposed to him. They weren't for him. But now that Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and you remember what he did when he first entered in. He came in riding on a donkey, the triumphal entry. He goes to the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers. That is now messing with the Sadducees' business because it is uh, 
Passover week. Jerusalem is at its highest population ever. And Jesus overturning the tables in the temple is like shutting down Macy's on Black Friday. And so now the Sadducees are going to step in and they're going to learn Jesus a thing or two because he has messed with their business. The way the scriptures talk about it, it says that same day literally means in the same hour. So the Pharisees have gotten whooped and they're leaving Jesus with their tail between their legs and now the Sadducees come in. So who are they? Well, the Sadducees were an extraordinarily powerful group. They were extraordinarily powerful, but they were a very small group. They did not make up um, maybe even 5% of the religious establishment, but they were very wealthy. They were very progressive. They were very materialistic. They were very secular. Um, In some ways, uh, we would definitely call them uh, theologically liberal because they were anti-supernaturalist. The very best way that I can think of describing them, they would have been like first century Episcopalians. They were very liberal. They didn't believe anything, but they were powerful, wealthy, but a very small and declining group. Verse 23 actually provides an extraordinary summary of who the Sadducees were because it says the Sadducees came and they are the people who, how are they described? Don't believe in the resurrection. If you just said they don't believe X, fill in the blank, that would be the Sadducees. They don't believe anything. They don't believe in inspired scripture. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch. They rejected the Psalms. They rejected the Proverbs. They rejected all the writings. They rejected all the prophets. They do not believe in the resurrection. As a matter of fact, they don't believe in any concept of the afterlife whatsoever. So a good summary of the Sadducees is the Sadducees are those who say there is no fill in the blank. Gospel, no virgin birth, no miraculous resurrection, no atonement. There's nothing. So they come to him and they ask him a question. And we see that question specifically in verses 24 through 28. Teacher, they reply to him respectfully. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. They cite uh, a scripture from Leviticus chapter 25, and they give the law, and now they want to give a case study. Now, there were seven brothers among us, and the first got married and died. That's quite an epithet, you know. Um, He got married, no live long and prosper, Star Trek fans, no nothing. He died, he got married, he died. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same happened to the second also, and to the third, and so to all seven. Then last of all, the woman died. Here's our question, wise teacher. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they all had married her. That's a perplexing little question, isn't it? They're asking an important question, but there's a couple things that we note about their question. Number one, we note that it was an insincere question. How do we know that? How are the Sadducees introduced in verse 23? The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And it's not just resurrection, there's no afterlife. As a matter of fact, wise Bible commentators have said that because they did not believe in the resurrection or an afterlife, That was why they're sad, you see. (laughs) 
Some of you get that later. <clears throat> if they don't believe that there's a resurrection, why ask this curious question? It's the origins of the question are just a tad bit dubious, but if you flip back just a couple verses to verse 15, you'll see really what is up. Why are they asking this question? Verse 15 says, Then the Pharisees, they went and they plotted how to trap Jesus by what he said. The Pharisees are a much larger group of religious leaders, and they take a special leadership role in opposition to Jesus. And while they may take a leadership role, we know very uh, explicitly that last week when they asked the question about God and Caesar, they went with another group called the Herodians. And so while the Sadducees were not responsible for the plotting, they were a part of the plotting meaning. And they're not asking a true question. They're trying to trap Jesus, trying to get him in trouble by how he answers. Not only was their question insincere, but their question is about a little observed law. I've mentioned it already uh, is a citation from Leviticus 25, verses 5 and 6. And it is a um, scriptural uh, law to preserve the progeny of a man who is married but has no male heir to continue his line. It's not a law that was frequently observed, but if you have read the book of Ruth, this law is the law that lies behind the whole idea of Ruth and Boaz and the kinsman redeemer. But in Jesus' day and age, we don't know that anyone really observed this, so the younger brother's right to refuse obviously took precedence over their obligation to their deceased brother. This was not a law that people were applying. And the truth is, if you look at almost any city's ordinances, you'll find some really goofy laws on the books. Back from the days when cars were first being established, there are cities that say it is illegal to drive your car over 25 miles an hour. Good law back in the day. It just never got taken off the books. And so this is one of those laws that's not really enforced, but it's one that they figure they can trip Jesus up over and they're going to ask. And so they cite the law and then they give what I think really is a hypothetical case study. I don't think that this is a true story. I don't think the Sadducees are coming and saying, hey, there really were literally these seven brothers because the story is absurd. To prove their point, they only needed two brothers, right? Right? You follow what I'm saying? He, he died. He married, he married her. They both die. All three die. Who is she married to? So you have seven to make the story absurd. Because for the Sadducees, they believed that belief in the resurrection was absurd. And so they tell this almost comical story. If you like the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, we would rewrite it this morning. It'd be one bride for seven brothers. And listen, if you're brother number three, don't eat what she cooks. I mean, I don't know what in the world is going on. Listen, some of you, you hear this law and you go, so if my brother dies, I have to marry his wife. That changes the in-law relationship forever. You will never recover from that. And so it's kind of comical because the Sadducees are painting Jesus into a corner by saying that belief in the resurrection is so absurd that you actually believe in polygamy. Isn't that really what they're saying? Which, which husband? Is it all of them? Was it whoever managed to live the longest after they married this femme fatale? What is the story here? Here's the question. And it's a grand question, just like we dealt with last week. The relationship between the Christian and our obligations and responsibilities to God and to government. The question here is, is there 
life after life or death in this life? That's a pretty fascinating question, isn't it? Have you thought about that this week? Have you wondered, what happens when my heart and brain stop? If you are like most Americans, Life, we just released a um, survey, and I don't remember the exact percentages, but it was the vast majority, 70 plus percent. Don't ever think. What happens when, I, like in the last year, 73% of Americans have never thought about what happens when I die. Is that you this morning? Because like, it would be, okay, all of you on the floor don't think about it, and the 30 of you up in the balcony do. Just don't think about it. Here's the issue. Is, this is a major apologetic issue. We, we have people that worship with us regularly that they don't know that the Bible's true. They want to come and they want to hear it, but they don't know that they affirm it. And so they don't know, what do we know about metaphysics? How do we know that God exists? How do we know that the resurrection is real? How do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know that there's life after death? This is not a biblical argument, but I think it's an important one. It's an argument from authority. Almost every single culture that has existed on the face of this planet has answered the question, is there life after death? Affirmatively. You know enough about mythology to know that the, the Greeks would give you, bury you with a coin so that you could give that coin to the boatman to carry you across the river Styx to the shadowy underworld. The Egyptians, listen, they were extraordinarily extravagant when it came to the afterlife. You got buried with a U-Haul if you were an Egyptian. They would give you supplies so that you would have food and you would have drink and you would have trinkets and things that you enjoyed. You know, you could take your baseball glove, you could take your stereo. They wanted you to make sure that you had in the afterlife whatever you needed. American Indians, a particular tribe, would bury men of honor with a pony and a bow and arrow so that they could enjoy the happy hunting grounds for all of eternity. They needed to be supplied. Nearly all of the authorities upon which all of Western civilization is built affirm that life exists after death. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and almost every religious leader affirms life after death. It will look different, it will sound different, but Confucius, Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, Augustine, Aquinas, and oh yeah, Jesus Christ himself said that life exists after death. So friends, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to affirm Judeo-Christian morality to know that life after death is a reality. As a matter of fact, Benjamin Franklin is not someone that we would necessarily affirm as a virtue of Christian doctrine or lifestyle. But listen to what he said or had written about his death. Here lies the body of Benjamin Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents wore out and stripped of its lettering and its gilding. Lies here, food for worms. Yet the work itself shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more beautiful edition, corrected and amended by its author. May not have been a Christian. Certainly affirmed the truth of the resurrection. Here's the deal. In dealing with this question, you don't have a lot of options. I'll list five of them here quickly. I'll mention a little bit more about the first because I think it carries, this is the main uh, opposition to uh, kind of what we believe as Christians. And the first is materialism. That material stuff, matter, is all that there is, all that there was, all that ever will be. And that material will turn into something else, specifically worm food. 
dust to dust. We'll turn back into what we were made of. And so there is, uh, at the end of life, the end of everything. It's gone. That's what materialism, secularism, atheism holds. So listen to this, just so I don't put words into their mouth. This is really, uh, among young people, the educated of today, the chief objection to what we believe about life after death. So let's listen to their authority, Bertrand Russell, and what he has to say about their belief system. He says this, If the whole temple of man's achievements is destined to be buried underneath the debris of a universe in ruins, and no thought, no heroism can sustain an individual life beyond the grave, then we must build our lives on the firm foundation of unyielding despair. That makes me want to shoot myself right now because it is psychologically impossible and logically contradictory. The unyielding despair is not a firm foundation to build anything on. Unyielding despair is a reason to end your life, not to be excited about what the future holds. And so the materialist has very little motive for living except as he or she pleases. Because there is no reward for good living and there is no punishment for bad living. So eat, drink, be merry, do whatever you want because we die. There's nothing and there is no foundation for hope or anything of that sort. Paganism. Some of you are um, Harry Potter fans. Some of you are Greek mythology fans. You know that for paganism, the afterlife is some shadowy, ghost-like, dreary existence. We don't know what it is, but you know, you're going to come back and you know, haunt people because your soul is just not satisfied. And that's what paganism holds out is the hope for the future. Yay, rah. Reincarnation believes that the soul survives and is reincarnated in some form or fashion into another life. And there's an endless cycle because, like, you never get it right. And you constantly kind of are on this hamster wheel of life being reincarnated into different forms, never really learning your lesson. There's the view of immortality. This is the view of Platonism. Platonism believed that your soul was good because it was spirit, but everything associated with your flesh was bad. So your flesh needs to be destroyed so that your soul can live. That's not our view. Our view is resurrection. Resurrection says that we are soul and body, and while our soul will be temporarily removed from our body at death until we are resurrected at the judgment, we will be reunited into a resurrected body. We're not going to be Casper, the friendly ghost, floating around with a big adult diaper on, playing a harp and winging it around. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we get a body, and it's a body that doesn't break down. It's not a body that has plantars, I can't even say it, fasciitis. There's no more diabetes or no more sticking needles in your stomach. There's no more death. There's no more disease. It's a resurrected body. And so Jesus is dealing with this issue And he's saying, oh, Sadducees, you are being deceived by your own bias. And he responds, Jesus responds to them with a double rebuke in verses 29 through 32. Jesus answers them and he says, you are deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? 
I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. What are the two rebukes that Jesus gives? The first is that they deny the power of God. They deny the power of God. And friends, this is not just an issue for the Sadducees. This is an issue for you and me too. Oh, I don't deny the power of God. Well, let's withhold judgment for just a second and let's see if you do. You don't deny the afterlife. Here's the, here's the issue. For the Sadducees, the afterlife is not impossible when you account for the power of God in the equation. Here was the problem with the Sadducees, with this little case study that they gave about the, <clears throat> the seven brothers and the one wife. Their assumption was that whatever happens then in the afterlife is like a facsimile of what happens now, presently. Okay, so... The resurrection is a resuscitation of current relationships. If there's seven brothers and they were all married to the same lady, <clears throat> now we have a problem here because we've got to figure out if she was married to all seven of them in that life, who's she married to in this life? The assumption is that A and B are basically the same. Okay, you, you, you with me? This is yes. Okay, by thinking that the afterlife is just like this life, now you have to answer the question, who is she married to? That's a terrible assumption about the power of God because we assume that God is powerful enough to, rise us, to, to raise us from the dead, to join our soul back to our body, but God's limited in what he can do in the future by making it just like it is right now. You follow that? I hear people say, you know, man, heaven's going to be like one big buffet. Well, you know, the Bible talks about it being a banquet, being a feast, but like any language we have, for heaven is completely inadequate. Oh, well, I'm going to go fishing forever in heaven. Heaven's going to be one big, long fishing trip, which for Reed Hopkins would be a terrible experience. Um, it would just not be good. Um, we, 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 we try to make then just like now, and then we limit the power of God because God doesn't have enough power to make the future any different than what our existence is now. So Jesus has a question back for the Sadducees. He goes, Guys, listen, why do you think Leviticus 25 applies to the afterlife? Married here doesn't mean married there. Now, I'm a step away from the pulpit here for a second, okay, because this is me talking. This is not the Scripture talking. The Bible makes very clear that family is God's idea. The Bible makes very clear that the relationship between a husband and wife is different than, uh, than parents to children. You, you, your, parent, your kids grow up and become independent, but there is a uh, blessed interdependency between husband and wife. To take that covenant not seriously, major sin. <clears throat> I cannot believe that our family relationships are moot and don't matter in eternity. Uh, I love the passage, I think it's Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. It says that there will come a day when all the families of the earth will worship before the throne. That's a pretty cool thing to think about. So, grandparents and great-great-grandparents that you don't know that we're faithful people, there will be some kind of recognition of our family. It's not like, you know, you just, hey, what's up, you know, to your spouse that you've been married to for 50 years. You know, it's not just like a normal relationship. The point is this, whatever relationship you have is going to be better. Why? Because if there's one thing that we know about life now versus life then is that big changes are coming. How do we know that? Because God has the power to transform. So here's your sub-point. Our manner of existence will be transformed. 
What do we mean there when we say our manner of existence will be transformed? God, at the resurrection, changes our bodies. It is a body, but it's a spiritual body. That's like jumbo shrimp. I don't know how it goes together. Spirit or body? I, I tend to think those two things don't go together. It is a spiritual body. God transforms our bodies. Why would we not think he could transform our relationships? The sweetest and most sublime and perfect of relationships that you have will be amplified beyond imagination. No conflict. Listen, you hear that there's no marriage in heaven? If you're in a really terrible relationship, that's great news. But what about you get to your 50th anniversary and your marriage has reflected Christ and you have learned to dwell with one another in an understanding way and men have led their families well and women have been what they've needed to be in their families and it's a good thing. However good it is, it will be much better than now in the lack of marriage, the lack of sexual intimacy, the lack of a familiar family structure will in no way diminish the bliss, the bliss and the joys that we will experience in heaven. That's an amazing thing to think about. Please note, because we're in the Bible Belt, and I need to provide this correction, the Bible does not say when we die that we become angels. It says we will be like angels, that we will not be given, or yeah, there's marriage. And the, the whole example of angels is perhaps another little dig at the Sadducees, because they didn't affirm resurrection, afterlife, angels, or demons. And Jesus uses as his example angels. So he's kind of getting another little dig in on them. So he says, you guys are denying the power of God. God can transform our bodies. He can transform our relationships. You don't understand the power of God. But then he provides a second and even deeper rebuke against them, and that's that they deny the truthfulness of Scripture. They deny the truthfulness of Scripture. The afterlife can, uh, is certain based upon the truthfulness of Scripture. And so if the manner of our existence will be transformed, here, the matter of the resurrection is a question of biblical authority. And by denying the afterlife, the Sadducees stand in opposition to the Scriptures. If you will indulge me for just a second, let me read a couple passages of Scripture to you that show that the resurrection and the afterlife are very vital themes both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Isaiah 26, 19 says this, Your dead will live. I don't know how you explain that one away. Like, you don't even have to read English good. <laughs> I have an elementary school principal in here too. She's going to send me for English lessons. <clears throat> Maybe if you read gooder, you could explain it a little bit better. It says, your dead will live. Their bodies will rise, awake and sing for who you who dwell in the dust, for you will be covered with the morning dew and the earth will bring forth the departed spirits. What's that talking about? <laughs> Resurrection! Job 19, 25 through 27 says this, But I know my living Redeemer, and He will stand on the dust at last. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet will I see God in my flesh. I will see Him myself. My eyes will look at Him, and I love this, not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. Psalm 16 Verses 9 and 10 says, You will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see the pit. You reveal the path of life to me. And in your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal 
pleasures. It's not just the Old Testament that testifies to the truth of the resurrection. There is an abundant New Testament witness as well. From Jesus' own lips in Luke 23, 43, as both he and this criminal are in the process of perhaps drawing their last breath, he makes the promise to this repentant criminal that today, I assure you, you will be with me in paradise. This is not the end of the story. John chapter 11, verse 25, one of Jesus' closest earthly friends, not one of the 12 disciples, but his friend Lazarus, and at his gravesite, Jesus says to her, his sister, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will never die. No, even if he dies, will live. In Jesus' answer to the Sadducees here in Matthew 22, Jesus uses the Pentateuch against them. They quote from Leviticus 25 with a Moses said. Jesus, uh, Jesus responds from Exodus 3 with a God said. So you want to show me your authority? I'll show you mine. And so they say, hey, in Leviticus, Moses said. Jesus has a particular view about the inspiration of Scripture. Moses may have been the channel through which the words came, but it's not Moses that's speaking, it's God that's speaking. So in Exodus, again, Moses writing it down, Jesus says, it's not Moses who said it, it is God who said it. Jesus is saying, hey, haven't you read where it says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Jesus is going after him and saying, guys, if you're going to base your argument on, on Scripture, then you should know Scripture, not just one verse that you're going to misapply. Oh, we've got him now. Who's he, who's he going to be married to? Oh, who's, whose wife is she? And he said, guys, listen, let's go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Since you only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, let's use your authority, and here's what he does. He says, don't you know what God said to Moses? That I am, not I was, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Moses lived 500 years after the patriarchs were dead and gone. And by a single verb tense, he confounds their entire argument. He is still their God 500 years later when talking to Moses and they are alive to him in some manner. Doesn't explain exactly what it is. Is it Sheol? Is it paradise? Is it heaven? Is it some disembodied state? We don't know. But they are alive to God in some kind of way. He is describing a relationship with them in present tense. Think about this here for a second. If God is the God of Abraham, and he is the God of Isaac, and he is the God of Jacob, but he loses them at death, then who's stronger? Their God or their death? God's saying, I don't bow to death. Death bows to me. I am their God, and I am stronger than death, and nothing will separate them from the love that is found in Christ Jesus. I love the way that uh, God is repeated three times. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. In connection with each patriarch, he is stressing a personal relationship with each, and he is still their God as much now as when they were physically alive. Just as God was decisive in Jesus' political theory, render to Caesar the few things that belong to him, and to God everything that belongs to him, God is also central. His power and his truthfulness revealed in the scripture is central in our understanding of the afterlife. 
Tertullian, the early church father, said this, and I love this, okay? Listen close, because this is, you're not going to be able to repeat this, but think about it. It's good. Tertullian says this, what reason do you have for saying we cannot rise from the dead? Why do you think we can't rise from the dead? Here's a question for you. What is more difficult, to be born or to rise again? What's more difficult, that what that which has never existed to be or that which has been should be again? Is it more difficult to come into existence or to return to it? What's harder, being born or being resurrected? Here's the point. You don't have power over either one. You didn't choose to be born. You can't choose to be resurrected, not in your own self, power, authority, Here's, here's the point that I think that Jesus is getting to. The afterlife will only be an after party for people who put their faith in Christ. We don't need Colton Burpo or Don Piper to tell us anything about the afterlife. We don't need somebody to die and come back because it's already happened. <laughs> Jesus is a much better authority to tell us what the afterlife is like because he is the author of it. He is the conqueror of death. And even in the midst of these religious authorities trying to trap him, Jesus' wisdom proves too pervasive. And they are astonished at his teaching. They're amazed at what he has to say. Not the Sadducees. It says the crowd was amazed. Because the Sadducees were content to trust in their own wisdom about what pathway they were going to walk. No resurrection, doesn't matter how we live. We're going to live the way that we want. And Jesus says, no, resurrection is true, and it's only available through Christ. And how you walk in this world carries eternal consequence because it's not an issue of just what you believe. It's what you act on. You want to know what someone believes? Look at what they do. Look at what they practice. Look at what their goal is in life. And that's how you really know what someone believes, not by what document they sign saying that they affirm. Jesus teaches that the afterlife is real and that those who recognize his authority, his truthfulness, Jesus' use of power will be the source of their greatest blessing. But for those who do not recognize his authority, that same use of power will be the source of greatest discouragement. And so the Sadducees, he says, who you can trust? You going to trust the wisdom of man? You can do that. Just be aware of what the consequences are. Are you going to trust the wisdom of God? Because if you trust the wisdom of man, I just want you to recognize that this morning, when you trust the wisdom of man, you are saying that Jesus was foolishly and fundamentally mistaken. That there is no afterlife. But Jesus has come that we might have life. That we might have it more abundantly. And he makes the promise to save to the uttermost body and soul those who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart. Seventy-something percent of Americans never, never think about what happens in the life after this life. Where are you on that question? Father, we note a most 
magnificent grace in your teaching on this topic. You could leave us ignorant and grasping for what happens in life after life, but yet you in your grace, you don't provide all the details, you don't give us a, 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 bro, a tourist guide's brochure, you don't tell us all the questions that inquiring minds want to know, but you do give us abundant evidence for who you are. Your, your coming is not to satisfy all of our curiosities, it is to meet our deepest needs that our sins might be forgiven and that we might be in a right relationship with you. And God, that is only possible through the cross. We have to admit and confess, agree with you that part of the problem with our world is ourselves, that we do not rule ourselves well, we do not rule this world well, and that we can only be in a right relationship with you as we come through your Son. To God today, I pray that uh, for those among us who maybe have not trusted Christ yet, that today could be a day where those conversations take place, that today can be the day that um, conversations begin where questions are answered and uh, answers are sought, that you help us to understand how awesome it is to know not just the God who died for us, but lives again and offers us life in his name. Father, for those of us who are believers, Help us to walk wisely because you tell us that the days are evil. So, Father, if we believe your word about the blessedness of the life after this life, Father, help us to walk wisely and to count our days well. And we pray these things in the strong and matchless name of Christ.